Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our June 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Because of the clinical importance of anxiety in depressed patients, the DSM-5 includes criteria for an anxious distress specifier for major depressive disorder. As part of the Rhode Island Methods to Improve Diagnostic Assessment and Services Project, or MIDAS, Mark Zimmerman and colleagues modified their previously published scale, the Clinically Useful Depression Outcomes Scale, to include a subscale for the DSM-5 Anxious Distress Specifier, or the KUDOS-A. The authors examined discriminant and conversion validity by rating nearly 800 patients on a measure of depression, anxiety, and irritability. Discriminant and convergent validity was examined in a subset of patients who completed other self-report symptom severity scales. They examined test-retest reliability and also compared patients who did and did not meet the specifier on measures of psychosocial functioning and quality of life. The KUDOS-A subscale had a high internal consistency and test-retest reliability. It was more highly correlated with other self-report measures of anxiety than with depression, substance use problems, eating disorders, and anger. It was also more highly correlated with clinician severity ratings of anxiety than depression and irritability. Kudos A scores were significantly higher in depressed outpatients with a current anxiety disorder than in those without a comorbid anxiety disorder. Patients who met the DSM-5 anxious distress specifier had poor psychosocial functioning and quality of life. The authors conclude that the kudos A is a reliable and valid measure of the anxious distress specifier for major depressive disorder. Sexual trauma during military service is a substantial public health problem and is associated with detrimental effects on the mental health of veterans. If a veteran has experienced military sexual trauma and is also exposed to high levels of combat, this combination may result in substantially elevated symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. In this study, funded by the Veterans Administration Health Services Research and Development Service and the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, the authors conducted a detailed survey with nearly 400 female veterans who served in recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Over half of the women had experienced childhood trauma, and almost 15% experienced sexual assault during their military service. The authors found that combat exposure, history of childhood trauma, and sexual trauma during military service all predicted the severity of PTSD symptoms. In addition, 
there was a significant interaction between military sexual trauma and combat exposure in predicting military-related PTSD symptoms, suggesting that exposure to multiple traumas during military service may have synergistic effects on PTSD symptoms in female veterans. These findings highlight the importance of prevention efforts to protect female veterans from the detrimental effects of military sexual trauma, particularly female veterans who are exposed to high levels of combat. Venlafaxine is a commonly prescribed antidepressant, but whether its noradrenergic effects increase the risk of cardiovascular events is unknown. Although several randomized controlled trials have looked at this issue, they were insufficiently powered to capture uncommon but clinically significant adverse drug events. Also, trial patients are different from real-world patients, who tend to be older, to be less closely monitored, and to have more comorbidities. In a population-based retrospective cohort study using administrative health care databases in Ontario, Canada, the authors of this article sought to examine the cardiac safety of venlafaxine relative to sertraline and other first-line antidepressant among older patients. The study received support from three nonprofit organizations of the Canadian government. The study included over 48,000 patients initiated on venlafaxine and over 41,000 patients initiated on sertraline. The majority of venlafaxine patients received doses less than 200 milligrams per day. The authors found no significant difference in the risk of adverse cardiac events with venlafaxine relative to sertraline. There were also no differences in the risk of death or acute myocardial infarction between the two drugs. However, the risk of heart failure was unexpectedly 13% lower among patients treated with venlafaxine. The authors found consistent results after stratification for pre-existing cardiovascular disease. The authors concluded that compared with sertraline, venlafaxine at a low to moderate dose is not associated with an increased risk of adverse cardiac events among older patients. Difficulty falling asleep and prolonged awakenings at night are forms of insomnia. There is growing concern among patients and their doctors about a possible link between insomnia and heart health including blood pressure. If insomnia and high blood pressure are linked, this association would have at least two major implications for patients. First, because insomnia is a common problem and often chronic in duration, a large portion of the population would need long-term screening for the possible development of high blood pressure. Second, Sleeping pills, which are already too often used and associated with a number of serious side effects, including addiction, overdose, car accidents, and falls, may be more often prescribed by doctors in an effort to treat insomnia from a possible blood pressure-lowering perspective. This study used data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys conducted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
The data set, which included nearly 13,000 Americans from across the United States, was used to investigate whether insomnia, depending on how often it was occurring, was associated with an increased risk of high blood pressure. After adjusting for many factors, including whether or not participants were receiving blood pressure pills or sleeping pills, there were generally no associations between insomnia and high blood pressure, even in the subgroup of participants who were suffering from insomnia the most often. These results should reassure patients and their doctors that insomnia and high blood pressure are unlikely to be linked. Although patients may need sleeping pills at times, concerns about insomnia as a cause for high blood pressure should not be the reason for such pills to be prescribed. Bipolar disorder is chronic and disabling, characterized by multiple relapses. The more frequent the relapses, the greater the disability. Rapid cycling describes this phenomenon. It is defined as the presence of at least four mood episodes in the previous 12 months. In order to summarize the data and to clarify the inaccuracies regarding rapid cycling, the authors of this article conducted a systematic review of the literature by searching Medline for English language articles. They reviewed 119 articles and synthesized the data regarding prevalence, clinical correlates, and familial genetic aspects related to rapid cycling in bipolar disorder. The literature suggests that rapid cycling is a frequent phenomenon as its 12-month prevalence reaches 33.3%. Interestingly, while rapid cycling does not represent a stable pattern, it seems to be related to a worse outcome because it complicates the course of the disorder with increased substance abuse and suicidality. In contrast to long-standing and popular beliefs, neither the triggering role of antidepressants nor a causal relationship to hypothyroidism was confirmed, although the authors did find a relation between rapid cycling and a longer course of illness plus an earlier age of onset. Conclusively, it seems that rapid cycling is a frequent situation, but on the basis of existing data, it could not be characterized as a discrete subtype of bipolar disorder. Clinicians should be vigilant because prompt recognition of rapid cycling can ameliorate the long-term course of bipolar disorder. More than a third of the approximately 10 million women with histories of interpersonal violence in the United States develop post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Many of them do not benefit from currently available treatments because of problems in affect and impulse regulation. While mindfulness meditation has been shown to help with affect regulation, most traumatized individuals have problems tolerating unstructured meditation and do much better with structured guidance like yoga to maintain their focus on bodily sensations. In this article, the authors conducted a study in which 64 treatment-resistant women with PTSD were randomly assigned to receive either 10 weeks of weekly yoga classes or a supportive health maintenance group. 
The study was supported by a grant from the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. The authors found that while both groups showed significant decreases in PTSD symptoms after the first half of treatment, only the yoga group maintained its improvement over time. The control group relapsed after its initial improvement. Yoga significantly reduced PTSD symptomatology with effect sizes comparable to well-researched psychotherapeutic and psychopharmacologic approaches. In their discussion, the authors comment that current mainstream treatments of PTSD are informed by cognitive and pharmacologic models, as opposed to somatic regulation and introceptive awareness. Body awareness is a necessary aspect of effective emotion regulation. Learning to notice and manage somatic experience may improve the functioning of traumatized individuals by helping them to tolerate physical and sensory experiences associated with fear and helplessness. Yoga can serve as a widely available and relatively economical adjunct to the treatment of PTSD. Despite the considerable burden major depression has on the individual, family, and community, only a few new antidepressants have been developed, and most of these target the same transmitters as the oldest agents. Depression involves oxidative stress, inflammation, dysfunction of mitochondria, decreased neurogenesis, and increased apoptosis, all of which play a role in its neurobiology. N-acetylcysteine has effects on all of these pathways. The authors of this article conducted a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial in which 252 people with a current episode of major depression were treated with N-acetylcysteine, or placebo, in addition to treatment as usual for 12 weeks and were followed to 16 weeks. The study received funding support from Australia's National Health and Medical Research Council and Australian Rotary Health. The authors found that while the study was not significant on its primary endpoint, a depression measure at week 12, the scores on a functioning measure differed from placebo. However, there were differences between the groups on the depression measure at week 16. Remission and response was greater in the N-acetylcysteine group at week 16, but not at week 12. The N-acetylcysteine group reported more gastrointestinal and musculoskeletal adverse events. The authors conclude that the study provides only partial support for the role of N-acetylcysteine as a novel adjunctive therapy for major depression. The study implicates the pathways influenced by N-acetylcysteine, principally oxidative and inflammatory stress and glutamate, but definitive confirmation is necessary. Complex motor and behavioral disturbances that are associated with canatonia can trigger many medical complications, including deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, pressure ulcers, muscle contractures, and nutritional deficiencies. Unfortunately, no syndrome-specific guidelines are available to help psychiatrists provide preventive care to 
catatonic patients during hospitalization. In this month's continuing medical education offering, a group from the University of Pittsburgh review the literature and provide guidelines that may be useful for preventing thromboembolism, pressure ulcers, muscle contractures, and nutritional deficiencies in patients with catatonia. In particular, a review of guidelines for preventing deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism supports the early use of anticoagulant therapies for patients who are at lower risk for acute bleeding. Frequent skin assessment, use of support services, and repositioning prove vital in the efforts to guard against pressure ulcers for bedridden patients with catatonia. Data on preventing muscle contractures are less clear, but support a combination of range of motion exercises and stretching. Finally, early initiation of enteral nutrition should be considered in catatonic patients with prolonged immobility. The authors emphasize that because such complications are frequent causes of medical morbidity and mortality, early implementation of preventive measures is imperative. Psychotic disorders, the most serious of mental disorders with onset in adolescence and young adulthood, often have negative personal, family, and societal consequences, especially if not treated adequately and consistently. Outcomes such as employment and social functioning are ultimately the most important targets to pursue in treatment, especially early in the course of illness when individuals still have the potential to make progress in these areas. In this study, the authors set out to determine which clinical or personal characteristics influence these outcomes. Patients with a first episode of a psychotic disorder treated in a specialized early intervention service were assessed on the length of their psychotic episode prior to starting treatment, how often they took their medication, the age and onset of the current psychotic episode, whether or not they abused or were dependent on illicit drugs, how well they function prior to their psychotic episode, how well they perform on tasks related to their short-term verbal memory, and the amount of time over one and two years that they were free from either positive or negative symptoms of psychosis. Their results show that longer periods of being free of positive symptoms such as delusions and hallucinations, and negative symptoms, such as emotional and social apathy and withdrawal, was the most important determinant of social and occupational functioning at one and two years of treatment and follow-up, while being able to perform well on verbal tasks was only slightly related to such outcomes. The authors conclude that sustained relief from symptoms of psychosis is important for functioning, and is associated with better adherence to treatment, avoidance of illicit drugs, and management of stress. As several studies have shown, cognitive impairments are present immediately following recovery from a first episode of mania. Although these deficits are of a lesser severity than those seen in more chronic patients with bipolar I disorder, Little is known about how cognition worsens over the course of illness and whether changes are associated with disease progression. 
The authors of this study examined data generated from the Systematic Treatment Optimization Program for Early Mania, also known as STOPM. This program, which is supported by an unrestricted grant funding from AstraZeneca, provides naturalistic treatment and longitudinal follow-up of patients following recovery from their first manic episode. Along with regular clinical follow-up, patients receive a comprehensive cognitive assessment at baseline and again one year later. The authors examined the data to compare cognitive performance between patients who experienced a recurrence of a mood episode versus those who maintained remission over follow-up. A healthy comparison group was also included. The authors found that while both patient groups had large impairments in cognitive functioning compared to healthy subjects at baseline, only those who experienced a recurrence showed deficits at one-year follow-up. Furthermore, those who remained well also showed greater improvements over time than both other groups. Within the group of patients who experienced a recurrence, the number of hypomanic or manic episodes was associated with performance declines. The authors conclude that bipolar I disorder is a dynamic and progressive illness and that their findings further highlight the potential benefits of successful early intervention in reversing impairments presented early in the course of illness. To advance the understanding of Alzheimer's disease, researchers need a cognitive composite that is sensitive to tracking decline in preclinical Alzheimer's disease and that can be used as a primary endpoint in treatment trials. The authors of this article capitalized on longitudinal data from cognitively unimpaired presenilin 1 E280A mutation carriers from the world's largest known early-onset autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, Kindred. They sought to identify a composite cognitive test score with the greatest statistical power to track preclinical cognitive decline and estimate the number of carriers aged 30 years and older needed to detect a treatment effect. They received support for their work from the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute on Aging, and the State of Arizona, and contributions from the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation, the Nomas Foundation, and Colsensius. The mean to standard deviation ratios of change over time were calculated in a search for the optimal combination drawn from the neuropsychological test battery in cognitively unimpaired mutation carriers during a two to five year follow-up period. This was done with data from kindred non-carriers during the same time period to correct for aging and practice effects. This assessment protocol included the consortium to establish a registry for Alzheimer's disease neuropsychological battery, as well as additional tests. This composite cognitive test score will be used as the primary endpoint in the first Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative trial in cognitively unimpaired autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease carriers within 15 years of their estimated age at clinical onset. 
The authors have independently confirmed their findings in a separate cohort of cognitively healthy adults who progressed to the clinical stages of late-onset Alzheimer's disease. They have described this work in a separate report and continue to refine the composite in independent cohorts and with other analytical approaches. Psychiatric hospital readmissions correlate with illness severity, drug selection, and compliance with treatment in the outpatient setting. However, investigations of the risk factors for psychiatric rehospitalization have not assessed somatic comorbidity and anthropometric variables, such as body mass index, which are known to predict readmissions in non-psychiatric settings. This analysis of a consecutive cohort of 945 patients admitted to a large psychiatric hospital in New York City indicated that almost a quarter of subjects had a relapse requiring readmission within one year of admission for treatment of severe mental illness. Independent predictors correlated with readmission included higher body mass index, a diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, treatment with clozapine, and shorter length of stay during index admission. As a risk factor for readmission, treatment with clozapine may be a proxy for severity of illness in schizophrenia and suboptimal response to treatment, which has been documented in almost half of patients in which it has been used as the drug of last resort. Higher body mass index is a novel risk factor for psychiatric readmission and deserves careful consideration. A body mass index in the overweight and obese range is common in patients treated with antipsychotics, and weight gain may lead to non-adherence with antipsychotics. In a recent study, 86% of patients who perceived themselves to be overweight attributed the excess adiposity to their antipsychotic treatment, and most of those patients reduced their medication dose by themselves. In addition to engendering a negative attitude towards treatment, obesity may correlate directly with the severity of psychiatric disorders through dysregulations in shared biological pathways, such as hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal activation and neurotransmitter imbalances. Negative symptoms are often regarded as the central dysfunction in schizophrenia, and they seem to be closely linked to global functioning. A group from Spain studied the efficacy of two pharmacodynamically different antidepressants as adjunctive treatments for negative symptoms in schizophrenia. In a double-blind, randomized trial, citalopram, riboxetine, or placebo was added to the treatment of 90 patients with schizophrenia whose negative symptoms had not improved during olanzapine or respiridone treatment. The positive and negative syndrome scale and the scale for the assessment of negative symptoms were used as outcome measures. After six months, patients who were treated with riboxetine and citalopram did not show greater improvement in negative symptoms or in positive or general symptoms than those treated with placebo. No differences in side effects were found among the three groups. 
three people in treatment with roboxetine or citalopram experienced an acute exacerbation. The authors conclude that adding citalopram or roboxetine to risperidone or olanzapine for the treatment of negative symptoms does not seem to be an effective strategy. This month's ASCP Corner Offering examines a topic of current interest and debate, the relationship between depression and inflammation. The author first discusses the question of whether there is an inflammatory subgroup of people with depression. He goes on to look at the impact of what he calls the trifecta of trouble, early life adversity, obesity, and treatment resistance. The article ends by highlighting a few trials that serve as a starting point to investigating depression treatment strategies that target the immune system. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column continues last month's overview of electroconvulsive therapy. This month, Dr. Andrade introduces a three-part schema for thinking about how ECT works. He then gives an overview of each of these parts, which are delivery components, therapeutic mediators, and therapeutic processes. He offers a way for clinicians to explain ECT that is both accurate and understandable. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andretti's column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites.